Welcome in, everybody, to yet another edition of Celtics Beat, Sunday, January 11th, 2015. It is I, Larry H. Russell, yes, author of Fall of the Boston Celtics. Have to give a big appreciation to all the people that went out to CLNSRadio.com and ordered Fall of the Boston Celtics this week. Yes, it's already back ordered, but it looks like we're getting you guys your copies now. We greatly appreciate it. It is yours for free. We've set up a pledge account. If you'd like to pledge money for the book because you love the book so much, please feel free to donate. Part of your proceeds are going to go for cancer research at Michelle's Place, which is a great charity that CLNS Radio has to work with. So anything you could like to give, you're more than welcome to. If not, doesn't matter. Like I said, the book's yours. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. Tremendous success for the book. And we're going to spend this entire show talking about this book. We're not going to waste any time. Elrod Ancelotti of Real GM is going to be joining us in about two seconds. Let's not waste any time. I'm going to bring in somebody who I'd say one of the – I'm not going to – I'm out here to brag, but maybe one of the few people who knows more about the infamous doldrum period more than me and maybe who's written more about it more than me. Real GM's Elrod Ancelotti. Elrod, welcome to Celtics Beat. <laughs> Good to be here, Larry. Well, I greatly appreciate you uh, giving me the kind words for that book. I know you meant it very much. Uh, the book's doing very well, and that's why we're here, here, here on the show to talk about it. Uh, depressing subject, or we could obviously talk about the present issues, but one of the—I know you mentioned this. I've, I've been reading you for years. One of the many things you've mentioned over the years is you sort of hinted that the Celtics made a mistake— not breaking up the original big three and letting it ride out essentially till its expiration date. And what I learned through the book was, well, I mean, I, I, I sort of had this opinion anyways, but they were really handcuffed with options, um, especially after bias died. Do you, after reading the book, do you still have that sort of opinion? Well, actually, I, I would say I've, in my work, I've never really criticized Jan Volk and Red for not trading Kevin Larry or Robert Parrish. Uh, that hasn't been one of the teams I've made. I think they were in a very difficult spot with those guys, uh, especially once Larry's and Kevin's health went downhill and they really weren't the same players. Uh, you know, my, I think the point you make in the book, which, which is one of the reasons I say this, is the salary, the trade rules were much different then for trading guys with huge salaries. It wasn't as easy as it is today. It's, it's gotten loosened up considerably. So you had to trade basically for a guy with almost an identical salary uh, to make a trade work. It was it was it was not conducive. They didn't want to encourage trades. The other problem that the Celtics faced then, <clears throat> I'd say in the late '80s especially, is that no other team wanted to be the next team that got fleeced by the Celtics in a trade. You know, the the bias, uh, the tragedy of Len Bias. Uh, overwhelmed the fact that the reason we even had a chance to draft Len Bias was that Red absolutely snowballed uh, Seattle into getting that pick. I mean, it was just an extraordinary deal. And had Len Bias lived, it would have been the sort of thing that would have lived in infamy in Seattle supersonic history that they lost Len Bias for Gerald Henderson, who was, you know only had a couple of years left in the tank. Yeah, I mean, it's... It is tough to sort of go back on that period and just say, oh, my goodness, only if bias lived. But, I mean, that really was just – it's just a whole different ball game for the Celtics if bias lived because if – like I, I, one of the things that I pointed out, bias survives, then you probably do that trade with Kevin McHale at Dallas and you get two young bench players for the next seven, eight years and Sam Perkins and um, uh, Detlef Schrempf. 
And then you probably don't make that Danny Ainge trade, which I thought sort of went under the radar uh, for a lot. I mean, it was a big deal at the time, but that was a big loss because their guard play for like the for about <laughs> for a long time after that was just terrible. And and Danny was the you know not just a productive guard, but he would have been a pretty important cog in terms of transitioning one Celtics team to another as guys like Bird and uh, Robert Parrish were aging. So, I mean, that's just a whole different team in the 90s. Obviously, we all know the immediate impacts. The guys that I talked to, players on those teams, I talked to Jan Volk. I mean, they pretty much swear they would have at least won the championship in 87 or 88, if not 87 and 88. But even if you just throw that out the window, which we obviously shouldn't, they're just them constructing a team in the 90s is just, I mean, it's just a whole. Jan Volk is probably still the general manager of this team if, if Bias survives. Well, you know, there's a couple of different things going on here. I think if Bias had survived, no one knows really. We could hard to project what would have happened. My guess would be, though, if Bias survives and is is a very, very good player, if not a superstar, certainly an all-star caliber guy who can play either forward position and is a dead-eye shooter, I don't think they trade Kevin then probably. They probably they would keep him for a number of reasons. Uh, he just reduces minutes like Larry's, but that's a really hypothetical. Uh, and the, the, regrettably, we didn't have the luxury of having that in the real world, that conversation. And I agree, though, we would have won, and we would have won the 87 title. Bill Walton had stayed healthy. Let's be clear here. If we'd had the 86 Bill Walton and 87, um, we would have beaten the Lakers that year. We we had nothing in the tank. We were dragging, you know, Greg Kite out of molasses to put on the floor. We had nothing. To, and our both Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale were playing on bad wheels, and we still took them to six. And it would have been seven if that shot by Larry, that beautiful shot in Game Four, had fallen. So that was the best Laker team probably of that era too. So that's how good the Celtics were, even with only five guys, four of whom were really badly injured throughout the playoffs. So we can talk about that forever and, and cry over the spilt milk. But I, where I would say the really interesting period, and I actually have high marks for Jan Volk, you know, he had to navigate with the aging big three and with Danny Ainge. He had to somehow try to come up with a team that could still win. And I think he did a really good job. You look at, he got uh, Reggie Lewis in the 87 draft in the at bottom first round, fantastic pick. Brian Shaw in the 88 draft picks up Kevin Gamble uh, from the Philippines, who'd been released in his second year. So he's like 23 year old, in effect, a rookie uh, when Larry gets injured in the fall of 88. And you got Lowhouse, so they get in the second round, and Mark Aker, so they pick up uh, out of Europe. So they've got like five young guys, really, that he's put together who each have certain varying degrees of talent, but they all look like legitimate players. And he did that pretty much overnight. So you start there, and it's uh, he had the, the putting together the rudiments of what looked like a nice young core to complement the big three. And then there were the, the, the two X factors that really hurt, that really derailed that moment. One was, you know, we, and you talk about this in the book, Larry, you know, we've got our highest draft pick since bias and one of the highest draft picks we'd, we'd normally get in the 89 draft because that was the year we didn't have Larry. So we picked, I think, what, 13th overall that year? Yeah. Uh, yeah I 13th. know where you're going with this. Yep. Yeah. And so we had on the – there was a chance to draft. Um, you know, Sean Kemp was available. Tim Hardaway was available. Uh, Vlade Divac was available. And I think, you know, that was a sort of, if we'd made the right pick there, 
with those other guys and the big three, and we had not made the idiotic Ainge trade because we weren't so short-sighted that we thought we needed Ed Pinkney that badly. We put all those ifs together. Um, you know, if we had made a smart pick, Sean Kemp, Tim Hardaway, uh, that could have really put the team on a different trajectory. The other part of that, and this is someone who didn't appear in your book, interestingly, but he's someone that, you know, I've thought about a lot, and uh, he played a big role, I think it was in Dan Shaughnessy's book about this period, as a Serbian or Croatian, I think he's Croatian uh, seven-footer we signed for two years named Stojko Vrankovic. And I don't know if you remember Vrankovic, he was I on our roster from 89 to 91. And Stojko Vrankovic was an intriguing guy. The Celtics actually hired Dave Collins to be his personal tutor his first season, I think. And Collins worked closely with him. And I remember interviews with Collins, and Collins said, look, this guy has great talent. He's very raw. You just got to play him. He's got, you know, he just needs game time experience. He can't do it doing drills with me on the sidelines. And the Celtics, for whatever reason, didn't give this guy much of a chance to play. And the reason why that, I think, is unfortunate is we don't know if uh, Stojko Vrankovic would have ever made it. But he was a legitimate 7-1 or 7-2. I guess he had long arms. He could actually jump well. He was an unbelievable shot blocker. I mean, so nowadays we appreciate the importance of rim protection. If Stojko Vrankovic would have just been a you know poor man's Matambo, uh, with all the other talent we had assembled, that could have been interesting. Uh, then back one last point on Michael Smith, who was the guy the Celtics did draft in the infamous 89 first round. Michael Smith was a weird guy when you looked at his college numbers. He had lots of assists for a forward. He could clearly score. He wasn't a bad rebounder, but he wasn't great. But, you know, he really looked like he had sort of Larry-type numbers in scoring and assists. And that's why Red made his famous comment, we think he's another Larry, or we hope. And But the thing about Michael Smith and why he would not be drafted that high today and this came out later because you looked at his college stats and he had almost no steals and no block shots. It was unbelievable. Like, like one steal in a whole season. It, even, you know, the slowest, dumbest, blindest person gets more than one steal just by being awake. And he had no block shots either, which for a guy who's 6'9 in his bare feet and 6'10 in his shoes, is unusual. And what they found out was it came out after he was drafted, like a year into it. They are saying, why is this guy so bad? His wingspan was only 6'1". He had absolutely the shortest arms in the league. Uh, I mean, to give some contrast, most humans, their wingspan is an inch or two more than their height. You know, so if you're six feet tall, your wingspan is probably six one, uh, and or six two. But it's certainly your height or higher. And there are some players who have short wingspan. Kelly Olynyk today is he's six eleven in his bare feet. But his wingspan is six ten. Uh, that's you know that's his limitations defensively. Well, Michael Smith had a six one wingspan. He couldn't guard anyone. It was just, it was hopeless. He had, you know, these just little uh, kangaroo arms. And uh, nowadays, they measure that. That's widely known. That would have been inspected and talked about online by scouts, by everyone. And he would have fallen in the draft accordingly because that would have basically said, okay, this guy will not be able to cover anyone in the league. You're getting, at best here, a pure off-the-bench, three-point shooter, uh, pinch hitter type guy. You're not getting someone who can play any rotation minutes. And... Uh, so that draft pick, Michael Smith over Sean Kemp or Vlade Divac or Tim Hardaway, that was a killer. Yeah, I, I dedicated a whole chapter to that in the book. And what I mean, what I also mentioned, too, was that hurt a lot 
But as you were as you were discussing earlier about Jan Volk, and then even when Dave Gavitt came along, the Celtics had like it was like a five six year stretch where they hit every single draft pick except that eighty nine draft. That's I mean, right. Remember they got. Lewis, they got Shaw. I mean, even like, you know, Brad Lohoff, nobody says, well, I mean, he was an NBA player out of the second round. You take that any day of the week. Hey, look, he played a 10-year career in yeah, the NBA. Exactly. Um, and then, if you, if, then they, the fall, after they whiffed on Smith, they picked D. Brown. And then the year after that, they picked Rick Fox. And even I count John Barry, they just had that, John and, oh. and Dave just had that huge issue without a contract. But it was that one miss. That's Michael right, Smith, and, and you know what? It it, it stinks because that's what four out of five. You take four if when you look at draft choices, even the highest are lottery picks. You take four out of five any day. I mean, sometimes you even take fifty percent. Uh, but it was that one miss in the book. You mentioned Kempton Divac. It really it came down to Hardaway and Smith from the discussions that I had, and Larry Bird uh, was pushing hard for the Celtics to pick Hardaway, and he even told that to Tim. But I spoke to Tim personally myself for the book, and I was actually expecting Tim because the, the whole story was that Hardaway was furious, the Celtics didn't pick him, and I think there was even that book um, that those two New Yorkers wrote about how it might have been a racist selection and everything. And I actually kind of asked him that off the record, and he said no, absolutely it wasn't. And he actually he told me flat out that what he thought happened was that Nelly had swerved the Celtics, which is completely believable because he had, as I mentioned later in the book, he, there are front office members of the Patino uh, administration who admitted that it happened. So it happened in 98 and it happened in 99. Nelly was telling everybody, including the Celtics, this Hardaway kid's got a bum knee, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then he takes him at 14. Yeah, you're right. That, that one year was a killer. And I think just that year combined with Rankovic, might have been enough because you're right. They drafted really well. Otherwise, that's why I think Jan Bulk, you know, till when he was in there, he did about as well as he could do. And you talk about that great start we had. And I think it's been forgotten that in the uh, was it 91, 91, season, the first two months of the 91 season, we were like, what, 25 and five, 29 and five, 29 and five. And we were just blowing, running people off the floor. We had, you know, we, that was the point where you had uh Kevin Gamble was looking great. Reggie Lewis was becoming an all-star. Larry was rejuvenated as a power forward where he didn't have to run around after quick guys anymore. Parrish was going on forever. I mean, it was a really interesting team that um, would have been a legitimate championship contender. They were just they were beating everyone uh, badly. They were, and Bird uh, got, Larry hurt, got and hurt. That was, that was it. That was, it was that all was over. It. So the Jan Volk, I mean, to get to the to Jan Volk, if we had won that title... If Larry had stayed healthy that year, uh, Jan Volk would be remembered. He'd be on Mount Rushmore next to Red. That would be, God, this guy got another title out of the big three. No one thought it was possible, and he did it. And they, he came close to that. So he, I think Jan Volk, he did a commendable job. And I think you have to, I mean, I couldn't interview him for the book because he's no longer here. Uh, but you have to give Dave Gravett, D- Gavitt credit as well because everybody after they lost that first round series to the Knicks, kind of said, okay, that's it. This team is completely done. No chance. They should break up, do whatever they can. And those guys went to the back room, and they were. it was our back, Gavitt and um, Jan, and they literally, they had a perfect offseason that year. I mean, they had a perfect offseason. They, they complemented those three aging guys perfectly. Um, Reggie Lewis was more than emerging at that point. 
And yeah, it just it came down to one injury. Once Larry got hurt, that was it. And that was it for that era. And I want to shift a little further ahead now chronologically. Uh, 92, I thought they came back, had a pretty good season. Uh, that was when Reggie really blew up at the end of the year. But 93, I thought they had not a championship core in place, but they had like a, a building you know, they had something to build with. Um, they had Reggie there, who was 27 years old, an all-star. And then they also had, I thought, a pretty decent supporting cast around them. Not gonna, They were one superstar away. Um, but as we know now in today's NBA, once you have one, it's easier to get that seven. They had the one superstar. They had, I thought, a good collection of young role players who had learned off some championship veterans like Mikhail and Parrish. And they were, the, and most importantly, they were still the Celtics. They were still this franchise with incredible aura and mystique. And once Reggie went, uh, they became just, you know, that's when it went away, I think, forever. You know, I, I would, this is where you and I might disagree a little bit. I look at that era from 92 to, say, ML Carr coming in uh, as one of really sort of visionless, aimlessness, that cost us a lot of time. Uh, and uh, the reason is that, you know, you look at the 92 team, you're right. We came off the playoffs that year and Reggie Lewis looked spectacular. And then those games in the Cleveland series, when Larry was hurt and Reggie was the man, he looked like a guy who was a top 10 player in the NBA. He looked like a guy who was going to start being a regular visitor, not just to the all-star game, but to the all pro teams as one of the two or three best wings in the league. He was that good in the spring of 92. And it was exciting. At the same time, though, by the spring of 92, it was also pretty clear that Larry was, well, he would retire that summer. So Larry was gone. Kevin McHale was clearly on his last legs. Eddie Pinkney was a mediocrity. Joe Klein wasn't even a mediocrity. Uh, Parrish was 90 years old. Uh, and the young guys, other than Reggie Lewis, I think by then we had traded Brian Shaw for Sherman Douglas, who was a mediocrity. Uh, Kevin Gamble had not really evolved like we'd hoped he would. Dee Brown had talent, but he wasn't a point guard. Rick Fox looked like he would be a serviceable small forward. But I think if you assess this, the, the summer of 92, it's hard for me to be very enthusiastic about the near-term future. They're not competing with the big boys in the league. They got Reggie Lewis, a bunch of old guys and a bunch of mediocre young guys. Uh, they needed to regroup, rethink it. And instead, Gavitt put his foot down on the accelerator, coming up with guys like Xavier McDaniel, who was half washed up. And what, what was the point of getting Xavier McDaniel? You're paying a lot of money. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't a vision of how do you win a title? With Jan Volk and Red, there was always like, where does, what's the end game here that gets us closer to being playing basketball in June. Starting in 92, it was sort of like, okay, what makes us win a few more games, sell a few more tickets, maybe get into the second round of the playoffs? But nothing they did suggested they were thinking about how do we play basketball in June and hang another flag. Uh, and the example of that, one thing that I know, so your book didn't fully clarify, you alluded to it right now, Larry, is this issue with John Barry in 1992. But this, the Celtics drafted him. I thought it was a great draft pick. I had been following Barry. Uh, at Georgia Tech. I never thought he was going to be a starter or a superstar by any stretch or an all-star, but he looked like a great combo guard off the bench. And in fact, he had a very good NBA career for what, 12 years or 13 years as a combo guard years. off the bench. And, you know, we, we, this was, you got to understand, this isn't like uh, a baseball drafts in the old days. This isn't a draft where you negotiate the price and a player can demand a lot of money. We're in the era already in 92 where it's sort of you got the uh, 
prescribed amounts people can get paid. It's really not that difficult to arrange. It's almost unheard of that you have a first rounder who doesn't reach an agreement with their team. So why the Celtics, the only time in the 90s this happened, couldn't get an agreement with their first round pick over a salary? It must have been over pennies. I couldn't believe, you know, there, it didn't make any sense to me, and there was never any explanation for that. Well, it, was, it was over a year in a contract. I th Barry wanted three years, and Dave Gavitt was only willing to give two, and that's what the Celtics did back then. That's what Dave Gavitt did. He played hardball with Brian Shaw as well. This was not something new. Um, well, actually, Gavitt wasn't around when we had the Brian Shaw snafu. That was all Jan Vogt, because that was back in 89. He, uh, that, he, he, he he was there. Well, I mean, when they were when he was fighting to get him back from Europe, though. Uh, okay, well, yeah, he came I, I remember, back that remember, summer. Remember when he said, "I hope Brian knows Italian." They were, yeah, that's yeah. What, well, he, the, was, he, no, he was a little it, bit involved. He wasn't there uh, when he went in '89, but he, when they were trying to fight him to get him back, Dave. When they got him back, he just came back. Yeah, but so at any rate, it didn't, but however you slice it, when you look at the the Jan, John Barry thing, made no sense. They. They should, they just, you just got to get the deal done. You don't screw around on something like that. He was actually someone who would have been a really nice asset for the long term. Instead, they're bringing in yahoos like uh, Abdul Abdul. Ala Abdul Nabi is who they trade him for. And then they also bring in X-Man Xavier McDaniel, who I loved eight years earlier, but he was clearly at the end of his game. And then after that, they bring in Dominique Wilkins at age 90 for no reason. It just doesn't make any sense. They're, you know, they're trying, you know, you're trying to win a championship here. You're trying to win two more games and make sure it's impossible for you to ever win a championship. Uh, it was a, it was really clueless. And I, you know, I think then if you get past the Gavin era, uh, which was a fiasco and certainly wasn't helped by Reggie dying, um, it, that sort of put the last nail in that coffin in literally in 1993, then you get to the ML Carr era. And what's your take on ML Carr? Um, listen, I, my take on ML Carr was I don't think it's as bad as people say it was. I just think it, it was basically, if you, in the book, it was, let's see, he was there three years. It was really just three years of nothing. It wasn't good or it wasn't terrible because it was just three, it was just three wasted years, in my opinion. Uh, they didn't, it wasn't like Patino where he, I thought, kind of crippled the franchise in a way. But I thought they came out of the ML Carr situation in 1997. You know, they had the two first-round draft choices. They had seven open salary, you know, slots. Were the ML Carr years glory years? No, they're far from it. I thought, you know, when you were mentioned about signing aging veterans, I, I mean, I thought it made no sense for the Celtics to sign guys like Purvis Ellison, Dominique Wilkins. Uh, there were a few others in there as well because that was clearly a rebuilding team. But coming out of it in 1997... I mean, I thought the organization had a pretty clean sheet of paper to build a championship team. I, I agree completely. I think, you know, ML Carr, you know, he really was the, the first one who aggressively pursued what uh, the Philadelphia 76ers are doing this year and what the Knicks are doing this year. He said, basically, we need to get stars if we're going to win anything. And the only way we're going to get stars is by having a high lottery pick. And we're going to stink. I'm not going to. I'm not playing to go 38 and 30, 44 and hopefully make the last round of the playoffs and get clobbered every year. I'm, I want to get back to June. And we need another Larry. We need superstars uh, if we're going to play basketball in June. So he was willing to do a total tank job, which is what they did. 
And so he's ridiculed because the team is so horrible. His third year, uh, the 96-97 team won 15 games. He was, you know, Ben Carr, world's biggest moron. But let's put it this way. If, as a result of that, we got Tim Duncan, he would be regarded as a visionary and a giant. Even even without getting Duncan, I thought I thought I I felt like, listen, I was a huge huge Celtics fan in those days. I mean, I you know I I cover the team now, but back then I'm, I I make no qualms about it. I lived, breathed, and died Boston Celtics. I you know, they mattered everything to me back then. Even after now, when they didn't get Duncan, I'm going to say it on the air right now. I was 11 years old at the time. I cried my eyes out when I watched that lottery. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was at halftime of a Heat-Knicks playoff game. It was game seven. Cried my eyes out. However, a couple weeks went by. I still said to myself, hey, we got Patino. We got two high lottery picks. We have a promising young rookie in Antoine Walker. We got a ton of salary cap situation. We're the Boston freaking Celtics. We're going to be back. I, I, I honestly felt that. Even after, even after not getting Duncan, I thought... They were in a good situation, and even back then, looking at it now, do I think ML did a great job? No, but I also don't think that people can kind of jump on all, all over him and call him, you know, a moron because, first off, he was only there three years. Uh, that's just not enough time. He was there three years, and he took over a team that just had their best player pass away and had said best player's salary cap figure still on the salary cap, by the way. They, I briefly touched upon that upon the book. Uh, between... Um, I guess not between us, between the audience, uh, all the people that I spoke to, all you know, most of them off the record, very upset <laughs> that you know they're still upset to that day, to this day, of Reggie's cap, you know, still being left on the salary cap following his passing. And you know, to, to add to that, Larry, he, Reggie had just signed a large extension that went many years, so it would be the equivalent of having you know like a fifteen million dollar hit on a current salary cap for the next five years for a guy who's dead. I know, and uh, I mean, did he? Ma- he didn't really make that many moves that made sense. Obviously, you know, trading Sherman Douglas for Todd Day uh, was just—I mean, like it's not a move that you know kills the franchise long term, but it was just not the right move uh, to put it that way. But the team was—I thought when it was all said and done after ML's three years, I thought they were in a good position. Uh, Tim Duncan lottery pick or no Tim Duncan lottery pick, they had. A, you know, some decent young players. They had some pieces, and they had a ton of flexibility. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, they had they didn't have a lot of dead weight. They cleared away most of the dead weight by then, uh, and they have, still have draft picks. <clears throat> and, you know, I in all my writing, and as, as you know from talking to me before or emailing, I regard what followed ML Carr to be three years of maybe the Worst management of an NBA franchise ever. Certainly on the short list with Ted Stepien. Scott Layden. You know, you, you just make your short list of complete morons. Isaiah Thomas. Uh, Rick Pitino's GM work from 1997 till the day he left included some of the stupidest, most short-sighted, most idiotic moves uh, ever in, in team history and maybe in league history. Because he, he, he did everything wrong. If there was like a choice to go left or right, he invariably took the dead-end street and missed out on the door that led to the future. You know, I, I hate to say it, but yes, that was just a poorly managed era. And you know what? Those guys admitted it. Um, no, I, let's see. I, I reached out to tons of people for this book. There were two people 
who refused to interview for the book. I'm going to put it out there right now. Rick Pitino, obviously, did not interview for the book. And a gentleman by the name of Rich Pond, who I knew of back then, and I'm sure you, know, you knew of as well. However, he essentially was the most important figure in the organization during the Patino years outside of Patino. We barely knew him. He was sort of now a Wizard of Oz character. Still works for Paul Gaston, from what I understand, so that's probably one of the reasons why he didn't interview for the book. He might not want to said something critical, as it would have cost, could have cost him his own job. But I wanted to talk, obviously, to Patino. But those guys, now I, I, uh, while I didn't speak to Patino, I spoke to his you know, right-hand man and his left-hand man. I spoke to Chris Wallace, who was his general manager, and I spoke to his director of scouting, which was Leo Papiel, who remained in the organization well after Patino quit. He was actually with, with the Celtics up until the start of the 2012 season. Um, they admitted it. it. It was literally, as soon as they got there, it was win now. And Chris Wallace, I think there was like three or four quotes in the book where he said something, let's see, 99? Uh, when they made the infamous trade of the lottery pick um, for Vitaly Potapenko, I asked for the reasoning. Chris Wallace says we were in win, we, we were in win now mode. That was a team that finished 19 and 31 in a strike sorting season, and he said it. We're in win now mode. Traded Joe Johnson for Rodney Rogers and Tony Delk. Um, uh, you know, obviously off topic. Quietly, that was also a financial move because Gaston mandated to them that they had to be under the luxury tax in 2002. No questions asked. They did have to send away, you know, cut some salary, but they traded the wrong guy. Um, but still, once again, he said it. Win now mode. Uh, that was it. Taking the three first round draft choices in 2001. Leo Appeal. We were very excited about a 24 and 24, 500 finish in 2001 rather than waiting for Denver's pick, you know, in a few years, which has turned out to be the third overall selection. You know, hey, we jumped on it now. We were in win now mode. It was let's go, baby. I mean, th these guys were in win now mode when the team was, you know, still uh, <laughs> blooming. Let's put it that way. No, it was, you know, you've, you've, you know, you've read the book about it, so you've, you've just summarized the period really well. It was, for me, as a fanatical Celtics fan, I mean, and I should preface this by saying, you know, I'm 62, and I've been following the Celtics. I've been following the NBA since the 1960s, and I wasn't, I'm not from Boston. I was from Cleveland, Ohio, and I didn't really have a team I followed, and I fell in love with the Celtics at the end of the 60s when Russell was the coach um, because I so admired the way, uh, the Celtics in 68 and especially 69 under Russell defeated a number of teams in the playoffs who were vastly superior in terms of talent. It just really impressed me uh, the quality of the way these these old guys were playing in those. And I followed them since then. And what was always the sort of the Celtics legacy going back to that period was that when they lost a superstar or when their contender teams were fading, Red Auerbach had this spectacular talent to reload that no other GM had. So Two years after uh, we lose Bill Russell to retirement and Sam Jones to retirement in 1969, two years later, you know, Red has got you know Dave Cowens, JoJo White, Don Cheney, and Paul Silas uh, lined up next to Hondo, and we've got you know a 68-win team. I mean, we were already in the playoffs; we're winning two more titles. And it was extraordinary how quickly it rebuilt. And then shortly after that. Um, you know, the end of the 70s, we go back in the dumper for a couple of years and we come out of it the other side with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, uh, Tiny Archibald. So, you know, it's and so you got spoiled. And then by the 1990s, I always thought under Jan Voke 
And even under ML Carr, okay, these guys are going to get it together, and we're we're you're going to get what all Celtic fans think is our birthright, the right to be a contender and a champion, and it's just a matter of time. Then we get Rick Pitino coming in. In 1997, as you said, handed two lottery picks, basically having uh, no salary constraints for the first time uh, Celtics teams ever can play under the salary cap. And he comes in and he 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 blows one pick uh, for Ron Mercer, who was horrible, and he should have known he was horrible. He coached him in college. Uh, and then he uh, makes the other pick for Chauncey Billups and decides Chauncey Billups isn't going to make it as a point guard right away, so he dumps him for Kenny Anderson. Kenny Anderson, no one else in the league wanted him. There was no battle to get Kenny Anderson. It was basically they were giving him away. I think Portland or Toronto, whoever had him at the time. It was Portland. He refu- he, he, they, uh, Portland had traded him to Toronto. It was a, it's just a long story. I actually didn't really want to put it into the book because it probably would have taken about four pages to explain. Yeah. Portland had traded him to Toronto for Damon Stoudemire. There was a bunch of other pieces in there as well. And Kenny told me specifically, he's like, I was not going to go play in Toronto. So Toronto ended up trading uh, Kenny to the Celtics for Billups and a bunch of other you know pieces. It was... Yeah, so it, again, it was, you know, Chauncey Billups had talent. It was obvious. But it was also obvious he wasn't a natural point guard. He was a, more of a combo guard. Uh, but he also had great intangibles. Everyone knew that. He was a natural leader. He was really smart. Uh, he wasn't a gangbanger. He was a serious professional athlete. And so they, you know, just didn't have the patience. And then, you know, but there are other things that went on right away that were really bizarre. It, you know, you mentioned this in the book briefly. He signed, I think it was Chris Mills to like a seven-year contract, you know, for like 20-some million, which is a lot of bread then. And he saw Chris Mills play for like two days in practice and traded him immediately. It's like, what? what's going on? How, what sort of scouting do you do with Chris Mills that you sign up this enormous contract, and then you turn on and trade him almost instantly for Walter McCarty or whoever it was you traded him for? Uh, then there's Eric Williams. You know, Eric Williams, before early in his career, was actually a fairly explosive athlete and wasn't a bad draft pick uh, in the first round in 1995. Yeah, because that was a bad draft. Yeah, it was for middle of the first round. Eric Williams was a good player. And for whatever reason, Eric Williams came into camp that, that first summer uh, and saw Patino. Patino looked at him and said, this guy, this guy, you know, I don't like his style. I don't want to get rid of him. It's almost like, you know, Don Corleone or Tony Soprano. Get this guy out of here. And so he was instantly traded after like one or two practices to Denver for two second round picks, which wasn't really a lot uh, for a young talent like Eric Williams. You ought to have gotten number one. And what's been forgotten by a lot of people is that Eric Williams went to Denver and he started the season like an all pro. And I think he played the first 10 games. He scored 20, 25 points a game, getting to the line, rebounding, passing. And he was an outstanding defender. He looked like a stud starting small forward in the NBA for the next 10 years. It looked like one of the worst trades imaginable. And then Eric Williams ripped up his knee after 10 games into the season. And he came back and became a serviceable player because he was heady and he worked hard, but he never had the explosion again to be an all-star. But that was the sort of trade Patino made. He just like gave this guy away for no reason. It was incomprehensible. Signed Chris Mills and then traded him. Does he do any scouting? At every turn, there was no rhyme or reason to what he was doing. Um, I mean, you mentioned obviously the the Eric Williams trade. I I touched upon it. The only reason why you can't I didn't really jump on it is because they ended up getting him back anyways, and he was a integral. Not, I mean, he was a he was a, a really just a solid, good, intangible veteran that you can have on a championship team. 
I mean, I mean, yeah, we could go on all day about terrible moves that Patino made. It was funny. I had a conversation with Chris Wallace about this book. I mentioned in this book, I think obviously one of the other just poor moves that they made, and even Wallace admitted himself, he told me it was a quote-unquote miscalculation, was when they renounced the rights to uh, Rick Fox and David Wesley. Patino, once again, it was Wesley, was another guy. He had no interest in David Wesley. David Wesley told me this personally, ML Carr, all those guys, and he was telling me that they were furious when that happened, when they let those two guys go. And so, I mean, their defense, you know, Wallace told me, you know, was, hey, we signed David Wesley and Rick Fox. We probably win three more games, but we don't get Paul Pierce. So it's almost like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know what? You guys, you got lucky there. You know, it it is funny. I mean, you guys made made a few bad moves, and. And that ended up you, you know, getting lucky in an instant. But I mean, you know, this is the my feeling with Bettino is this: if Bettino had been smart, which is an obviously extraordinarily hypothetical as a GM, not as a coach, but as a GM, he would have come in and said, "Look, Boston, we only won 15 games last year. We don't have a lot in the cupboard. We're not, we don't have a lot of great players." All I'm going to promise you, it's going to take time. We're not going to be contending next year or the year after. It's going to take three or four years before we're going to start winning, playing basketball deep into May and June. Uh, and in the meantime, I promise you our teams will work their butts off. I'm going to coach what I've got, and we're going to accrue talent. Be patient. I promise a hardworking team that eventually will get there. If Rick Pitino said that, Boston fans would have embraced it. Boston fans are smart. They get it. They would have embraced it. And then he could have basically maybe let Wesley and Fox go. I wouldn't have necessarily done it, but let them go. But instead of signing Travis Knight or Chris Mills or some hack, uh, just leave it open. Just be bad another year. Be bad two more years. Go into the lottery for two more years and come up with some better players. Uh, And, you know, then you come out of it in 2000, 2001, and you start winning. You've got a real foundation uh, and you, you're set for the decade. And, you know, I could go on and on. It was just incoherent. I mean, you definitely, you, obviously, now looking back, that was obviously the thing to do. But if you remember no, no, I, back in 97, too. I, I'm going to disagree with you, Larry, because this was a period where I was active online. This is just when the Internet was beginning. Uh, people were writing on AOL uh, chat rooms. That's right. And I was in the middle of that. And I guarantee you there were a lot of people like myself uh, throughout the Patino era and right up to uh, the Wallace, you know, till Danny came in, at every turn we're making this argument. There were there were some people who were so desperate, and usually there were younger people who'd never seen the winning teams, who were so desperate for anything, they were just delighted to make the playoffs one year. They thought that, that their life had been made. But I think in the Patino years and then the O'Brien-Wallace years, thanks Dad Gaston years, um, there were a lot of us. At that time, going, this doesn't make any sense. This is not the way you build a championship team. This isn't how Red would do it. This isn't how Jerry West would do it. This isn't how smart GMs ever do it. So, I mean, I understand why Bettino did, but even at that time, there were lots of people saying, this doesn't make sense. I will say this, though. I was around in Boston at the time. That this At the time, Boston was not just a city starved for the Celtics to win again. I've touched upon this in, this, in my book. They were starved for any of their sports team to win. And Patino came in with such a just, like, I mean, I don't know really how to, how to put it, but just like this incredible wave of goodwill that he had this Midas touch that he, in just a couple years, was going to have a team as a winner. Everywhere he went, it was like two years, and his team, he had Providence in the Final Four, he had BU making the NCAA tournament, he had Kentucky as a national power, he had the Knicks winning the division. And that's sort of what it was with the Celtics. And I think as soon as 
Patino coming here and then winning that first game against Chicago, it was literally, oh, oh my goodness, we're going to be 50. If we're not a 50-win team within two years, <laughs> it's just like, you know, this huge, colossal disappointment. And that's, I think, why fans sort of to turn on him quick and turn on him with vengeance. Well, you're absolutely right. I was, I remember like it was yesterday. I remember that game against Chicago. Uh, but, you know, the problem Patino had, I mean, it wasn't that he was a bad coach because he's clearly not a bad coach. He's a very good coach. He was just not a horrible general manager and no vision. But, you know, the, the problem he seemed to have all throughout his stead in Boston was he seemed to think you could get talent at the pro level, like at college. Like I can just get rid of Chauncey Billups and I can get rid of these guys and just throw them overboard, and then I can recruit another class next year. Well, it doesn't work that way. You can't go out and just grab, you know, Alonzo Mourning and say, you're playing for me. Uh, he didn't seem to understand how the process of getting talent. He never showed any indication of appreciating the strategy that has to be involved, the long-term planning to build out a team like Jan Bokett and Red Hat, and all GMs have to have if they're successful. Danny's a grandmaster at it. He just was clueless. And I don't mean to keep dwelling on him, but the reason I, I you go back to my point of departure, you know, it was during this era, the late 90s, that I mean, for the first time, you got the feeling that maybe the Celtics were never coming back. Maybe we were becoming the Sacramento Kings or the Indiana Pacers or the Charlotte Grizzlies or any of these other teams in the NBA that are always mediocre. Occasionally they're bad. Sometimes they'll make it to two or three rounds of the playoffs, but they never seem to ever get it together. They never win titles. Maybe that was our lot. We were just going to go back to the middle of the pack. And I mean, I think that was the first time, the Patino years, and especially the Wallace O'Brien years, that I thought, this is it. The, the, the only thing that you're rooting for now are the jerseys and the tradition. The team basically is indistinguishable from all the, the mediocrity of the league. That, I thought, you nailed it right there. That, I thought, was just the worst thing that came out of the Patino years. Because it's funny, now when you look at it as historians, look at it, it's three and a half years. I mean, three and a half years in the NBA is like the snap of a finger. It's just, I mean, we're already, what, two years into this Danny Ainge rebuilding thing. It seems like it was just like two weeks ago they traded Pierce and Garnett. Three and a half years. But the whole, you know, the whole outlook of the Celtics that fans in Boston had and even like players around the league or media had was going into the Patino years, it was this, this is the Celtics, this is one of the elite franchises, not just in the NBA, but all sports. They're going to be back. You know, they always find a way. And in just three and a half years, they were, uh, like you said, they were no different than just, say, a Sacramento Kings. It was like the, the, them winning 16 championships uh, back in the day meant utterly nothing. And that, that, I thought, was really what hurt most about those years. And you know what also is a killer? Exactly at that time that that's dawning on us, Jerry West has gone out and gotten Shaq and Kobe and has put together another dynasty team in L.A. So we have to not only be complete mediocre hacks ourselves, we have to see the Lakers cleaning up out West and winning all the league titles. And then, then even and then I and then well, let's fast forward a little bit to some good times, uh, 2002, which for me. I mean, well, I was off, I was following the Celtics religiously, but that was sort of like the equivalent of the 1967 Red Sox. And uh, for you know, young you know Celtics fan base, I was in high school at the time during that season. That was a fun season. I mean, was it a championship season? No, but you'd be hard pressed to find any fan who didn't enjoy that season. But the funny thing you mentioned the Lakers, I remember actually considering rooting for the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals against the Kings. 
because I wanted to see a Celtics Lakers finals. And then actually, the other reason why I want to see a Celtics Lakers finals was I was thinking to myself, well, maybe the Celtics can win a game against the Lakers, whereas opposed to if they played the Kings, they would have lost all four games by about 40 points, <laughs> which almost assuredly would have happened. But talk to me a little about that 2002 yeah. season. What was sort of like, you know, your mindset then? Well, you know, it's a really interesting year because here we have the Celtics. You know, Jim O'Brien comes in, and Jim O'Brien would have sold his grandmother into slavery to win one more game He could, tomorrow. He cared nothing about the future. The future was bunk to him. That's why he and Ainge, their marriage lasted about two months, and then he quit because he couldn't stand planning for the future. Jim O'Brien wanted to win now. He wanted to do anything he could do with as many games now, and he had no vision either. He was perfect Patino protege. And then you had thanks to Ed Gaston, who basically said, win now, uh, but don't spend any money doing it. But I don't care about the future either because I'm trying to sell the team. And so Wallace did what he could to accommodate both their interests, and you had the variety of deals uh, that were so horrible and the, the bad draft picks. The worst deal, of course, trading Joe Johnson that season. But Having said that, Jim O'Brien, to his credit, took a team that was, you know, to be blunt, not very good in terms of raw talent, and he took them as far as they could possibly go. And for Celtic fans like yourself and myself, starved for playoff action. We hadn't been in the playoffs since, I think, 93 or 95. It was 95, a series against Orlando. Yeah, 95 is our last playoff. And we haven't been taken seriously by anyone since probably 92. 92. The last time we got to the second round and people said these guys actually could play, um, you know, it was fun to be back. It was to have our to be on Sports Center to have people know who we were to be playing meaningful games in Boston, and so that part was great. Now, and as a fan, every game I watched, I you know enjoyed it. I followed it. That great victory we had, the comeback win against the Nets, you know, that was exhilarating. That was what you follow a team for for experiences like that. And at the same time, though, I always knew, and I said it at the time, you know, we're, this is sort of fool's gold. We're like, you know, we're, we're enjoying this. It's fun to be here. But let's not have any doubt. We're not a very good team. You know, and you made a good point in the book that when Danny Ainge was a color commentator during that year and the following year uh, for the networks and was covering the Celtic team on the air, he was quite critical of just what an incoherent offense they played. And it was really not much of a team. And he was right. You know, it was, we had one great player, Paul Pierce, truly great player, who was a top 15 player in the league then and is only 24 years old. He was at the beginning of his career, 25. And then you had Antoine Walker, who already was in the downward slope of his career because he's a guy who probably worked out less on his body than anyone on earth. I mean, he, had, you know, he was just. Yeah, well, let's not talk about Antoine. Yeah, okay. But, you know, so he was a guy who should have been emerging into stardom, and he was on the downward slope by the time he was 24 and out of the, you know, effectively not a player by the time he's 29 or 30. And um, so that's what you had. And then you had a bunch of mediocrities. They'd blown all their draft picks. They didn't have any young talent once they got rid of Joe Johnson to compliment Pierce. And so they, they got to the finals in 90, the Eastern Conference finals in 92. Now, if you remember, they got there and they beat, uh, was it, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Detroit. Philadelphia, Detroit. Now, let's, in both series, Detroit sort of choked, and they were just about to become a great team. They were on the next year, they'd make their move, and they'd win the title in 04. 
Um, you know, we were sort of lucky in both those series. Everything fell the right way. It wasn't like we were just, just they were great. And they just kicked their butts. And they weren't very strong teams. This was a year in the NBA, like today, when the real power was all out west. And the great teams were all out west, uh, except for maybe the Nets. And so it wasn't that hard to get to the Eastern Conference Finals that year. And then when we got there, you know, we had that great win against the Nets. But the Nets basically were a vastly superior team, and they took care of business when they had to, uh, much like the way the Heat took care of us in 2012. The last couple of games, they got serious, and they blew us out. And, um, you know, then the, the Nets go to the finals against the Lakers and get destroyed. So the Nets were much better than us. The Lakers were much better than the Nets. As you pointed out, we weren't even that remotely close to that league. And so I knew then that this wasn't getting us anywhere. And then, then what you talk about in the book is what does Thanks Dad Gaston have Chris Wallace do coming out of that season to make Jim O'Brien happy? We make, I think, again, it's hard to top some of Patino's trades, but we made a trade that was simply unimaginably bad. And I said it at the time. I'm not, this is. Oh, everybody said that about the Baker trade. That, that's yeah. the thing. We can all look at moves like back then, like, oh, you should have made this pick, you should have made that pick. I mean, the I, I said it's like, you know it's, uh, both those guys Wallace and Peel. I mean, like nobody at the time was saying, "Oh yeah, I got a good feeling about this Baker trade." Everybody was saying, "Oh my goodness, what on earth are they doing?" And obviously, it turned out as bad as it could have, if not worse. So, well, the, the reason why it was so bad, it was sort of like the Kenny Anderson deal, or the Vitali Potapenko deal. In all these deals, the Celtics, you would think the way they went to get Kenny Anderson or Vitali Potapenko or Vin Baker, and all three times, you would have thought from the way the Celtics acted that they were 20 teams pounding down the door to get Kenny Anderson, Vitaly Potapico, or Vin Baker, that the Celtics just had to really come in with a really high offer to have any hope of nailing these guys. And, and But in fact, no one wanted these guys, and no one especially wanted Vin Baker. He, he Getting rid of his contract was the, it's like getting rid of Josh Smith's contract today, except Josh Smith is 10 times the player Vin Baker was uh, by the end of Vin Baker's career. And so we give these, you know, we take this contract back. It's absurd. We should have gotten at least two number one picks from Seattle just to take that $50 million off their uh, payroll. I mean, we should have gotten at least one or two number one picks, and they didn't even think of asking for that. I mean, they, they, Seattle probably would have given two number one picks to get that guy out of town and to get that money off their books. I mean, that was that that was a move that you really can't defend. But as I even mentioned in the author points parts of the book, um, I still thought that those guys got. I mean, they didn't get their luck as well. I mean. They got it with Pierce, obviously. They got extraordinary luck with Pierce. I mean, they, they made a bad move by letting Wesley and Fox go, but, and then they had Pierce fall to them. Um, but, I mean, they had identified some players. You have to give them credit. They identified Dirk Nowitzki. They identified Pau Gasol. They put together superior trade packages for even a guy like Jermaine O'Neal, who was rotting on Portland's bench. But Portland, you know, what, what they were in, speaking of teams in a win-now mode with short-sightedness, I mean, Portland, the, the jailblazers the jail under um, the Microsoft guy out there, I forget his name. Oh, Paul Allen. Paul Allen and Bob Whitsitt and all those guys. I mean, they, they traded uh, Jermaine O'Neal for Dale Davis when they, you know, first off, they yeah. should have traded Jermaine O'Neal. And if they were going to trade him, the Celtics were offering three first-round picks. So that was a better package. They offered yeah. three first-round draft choices for Gasol. I mean, if they had one of those moves go their way, once again, you could still probably say, because Chris, Chris Wallace, 
he he actually is no more. I mean, he's done a pretty good. He's done a very good job down there in Memphis. And did he do a great job of the Celtics? I mean, no, he didn't. But he gets a few of these things go his way. I think you're singing you're singing a different ball game now. The problem, though, is I agree with you. And I'm, I'm actually always liked Chris Wallace. I never thought he was the bad guy in all this. I think that Patino, Jim O'Brien, and Thanks Dad and Gaston were all bad guys. I think uh, Gaston was number one. We were only Gaston's number one. Patino's number close, two. Yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, at the same time, you know, when Chris Wallace meets his maker, you know, he, that 2001 draft, to his credit, they put it together so they actually had a couple extra number one picks. And that was something Patino didn't care about. But Chris Wallace gets in and immediately corrals a couple extra number one picks. So he knows they need some young talent. And so we go into the 2001 draft. And the 2000 draft it was one of the worst drafts ever. We got Jerome. Jerome Moise, so, but I, I'd, even, I'd even cover it in my book because, like you said, that was, yeah. like, that was the worst draft class in history. So That's right. Picking, there was no picking, one else. Picking a stiff in Moiso, it didn't really matter. Yeah, so it didn't really matter. But 2001 was a different story altogether. This was an excellent draft. This was a draft swimming with great players. I mean, it's such a great draft that some of these guys are still in the league today. Most of them are. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> A lot of them are still. I mean, Tony Parker's still in the league. Randolph, I mean, Zach Randolph, um, Battier. So, so this was going. really this was the draft. If Chris Wallace was going to turn it around, that was it. That draft is a chance for him to get three guys to put next to Pierce, and really be the foundation going forward to a really good team. But three guys you're getting at rookie scale too, so you're not going to have to pay much money to these guys. So that was his chance. And, you know, he hit one of the three. He hit over the center field fence with Joe Johnson. And then he turns around and trades him for a bag of potatoes. Uh, so he hit one great draft pick. And Joe Johnson was a great draft pick. Give him that. Uh, and then he didn't keep it. It was sort of like the Chauncey Billups syndrome. Incoherent. But the other two picks, you know, they're picks that even at the time, you're scratching your head. For example, Kedrick Brown, the kid they took 11th, I think, or 12th. Yeah, they guaranteed him. I mean, it, it, I covered it in that book. I know. You know, goofy story. I mean, they picked Joe Johnson because he was the best player available. And then, yeah, should they have picked a win with the second pick? No. But you Chris know, Wallace about, had a great relationship with Arn Tellum. He guaranteed but, him a couple weeks. I mean, I can't say, you know, I'm not going to say. You know, you and I, Larry, you and I have watched a lot of basketball. Yeah. And uh, more than probably our families wish we had. And probably anyone listening to a show like this has watched a lot of basketball. When you go out and you draft a guy like Kedrick Brown, or who no one's ever seen play, and you're drafting him ahead of guys like Murphy, Jefferson, Randolph, Arenas, Tony Parker. I mean, it's a long list of great guys coming up in the draft right after that. And you're saying, you know, we're going with Kedrick Brown. We made a promise. We love this guy so much. We had to hide him out so we could just hope he'd still be there at 11th in the first round. That's how much we love Keter Brown. You expect then the first time you see this guy play, he's going to jump out at you. Even if he misses shots, you're expecting an athlete of Dr. J talent. You're expecting this guy must really have unusual, stunning athletic ability. And he didn't have it. He didn't, you know, you say, well, where is it? What's this guy got going for him? He can't really shoot that well. Doesn't have a handle. He's a good enough athlete, but the NBA is filled with good enough athletes. I don't see... Uh, you know, Dr. J Jr. here. I don't see Michael Jordan Jr. here. I don't see anything close to those guys here. I see a guy closer to Antoine Walker than Michael Jordan athletically. It was just like, what what dumb pill had Chris Wallace eaten that he would look at this guy and put him above all these studs who were in the first round of that draft? 
I would talk about this a lot more, but guess what? We only have five minutes left on the show. So I think we have to talk about now. Rich Conti wrote a great column uh, on CLNS Radio this week, and he had mentioned how much that this 22-year title drought, or the dark ages, as I called it. Like I, if you haven't really gotten my drift recently, I said in the introduction of my book, you got the Roman Empire, which was the Celtics from 1957 to 1991. <laughs> then out of the Roman Empire, once the Visigoths sacked Rome, came the Dark Ages for, what was it, 700 years. And then obviously there was the Renaissance. We all know what the Renaissance was. But he mentioned how much that the Dark Ages, it's still in the mindset of fans today and how fans are I, – I, there's a good portion of the fans that are hopeless this team's done. Ainge is going to take this team another 20-year title drought. Brad season doesn't know what he's doing. This team's horrible, blah, blah, blah. How do you feel so far about this current, you know, rebuilding process? I'm extremely happy with it. I, you know, the way I look at it, rebuilding is really hard. There are 30 teams in the NBA. There's probably only a handful that are legitimate contenders. Getting to legitimate contender status is very difficult to do. The teams are a lot smarter today than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. The, the management's a lot better. You don't have the same crew of morons out there. You know, Danny, to his credit, located one of the last morons in New Jersey or Brooklyn for that Pierce Garnett heist. Uh, so, if the, no matter what a great job Danny does, there's a chance it won't succeed. It's not. He needs a little bit of luck. You need to. You need things to fall your way. But I think every, what he can control, I think he's done masterfully. The other point I would add is that you know we're in the second year of a rebuild, and he started uh, in, in May of 2013. He was looking at a roster where he had Rajon Rondo coming off a knee operation, Jared Sollinger, a middle first round pick. Avery Bradley, and that's about it. He didn't really have anything else to work with. Not much. He didn't have much more. Maybe he probably had less to work with then than he does than he did when he came in in 2003 and had Paul Pierce. Uh, at least, at least he had one entering superstardom dude to build around. No flexibility back then. He, yeah, it, it's funny. Back then, he had the one star to build around in Pierce. But he also had no flexibility, no extra draft choices, no young talent whatsoever. That's and then right. in 2013, I mean, you mentioned Avery Bradley. I mean, Avery Bradley would have been like the second best player on that 2003 Celtics team. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, and, and he had a little more flexibility salary rise to work with. Because remember, back then, he had Antoine on the books at max money. He had Baker on the books at max money for the next four years. I mean, they, they were in a tough spot. And, and it wasn't like teams were lining up to trade for Vin Baker or Antoine Walker. He was stuck with these guys. So, so you look at the situation we're at now, you know, now we've got some young guys who have some interesting talent, smart, young, uh, Sullinger, Olenek, even Zeller and Bradley, I put in there, Jay Crowder is a bench guy, but they're all under 25. I mean, they're young dudes uh, who look like they're legitimate players, and you can get excited about it. It's a nice core. Uh, after this year, we'll be pretty much shed all the bad salaries we've got. After next year, they'll all be gone. Uh, we've got two number ones this year, two high number twos this year that will be before the 35th or 6th pick. So yeah, we're going to the first pick in the second round. That's essentially a first-rounder. Well, it'll be actually thanks to the Knicks. It might be the second pick in the second round. Uh. Uh, but our own pick, I mean, I think right now we're looking probably at like the 6th or 7th or 8th pick in the draft. I think this season's going south for the Celtics. Once so, they go out west, forget it. I mean, they're yeah, going to get so, it. Exactly. Right. This month's going to be like the baton death march uh, for the Celtics. So, 
Uh, we're going to have four pretty good draft picks, including a lottery pick this year. Next year, we have four number ones and four number twos. I mean, we're swimming in draft picks. We're going to have lots of cap room. Now, whether that's going to translate into being a contender, but I do think if you give this team four years for rebuild, that's what Danny took last time, four full seasons. Then you say in the summer of 2017, four years are over, can we legitimately say we're a team that's going to be a contender with the players we have on the roster in the summer of 2017? Right now, I think Danny's done everything in his power to put us in a situation where we, he can answer that yes. Uh, that, you know, in the summer of 2017, like the summer of 2007, uh, he's going to have the, you know, we're going to have a core there of, of really good, young, talented players. And he's going to have the resources and draft picks and cap space to go out and get maybe a superstar veteran to come in and lead, lead these complementary pieces. So, yeah, I think he's done everything you could absolutely want him to do. You know, I look at his situation compared to what the Knicks are doing now or what uh, you know, some of these other teams are doing, and I, I wouldn't trade places. Final question real quick before I let you go. We're going a little bit over time here. Are you, while they did make that trade, I mean, they did very well value-wise for trading Pierce and Garnett, are you a little concerned that they seem to lose a little bit of that winning culture? And you've even seen now players like you know, Jay Crowder questioning the coach and uh, Selinger questioning the team after every game. Are you a little concerned that they, you know, the culture of the team, which was one of the positives they had, even in the waning Garnett years, is you know that's going to be tough to build back up. It's well, look, that happened in the first rebuild. Remember under Doc Rivers, and a lot of people have conveniently forgotten this. Eighteen in a row. Eighteen in a row. Those last two years before we won the title, we were deep in the lottery both years, and we had, you know, we had a lot of we had some real hacks like Mark Blount. We had some real buffoons on the team. It wasn't, you know, people, we had guys who were young and trying hard, but there was a lot of problems. The people were calling for Doc's head constantly. I was one of the few people who was defending Doc routinely. Uh, and, you know, so rebuilds are tough. Losing is tough in the NBA. It's very hard to find a team that's going to go 25 and 57, and you're going to have guys, you know, drinking chocolate shakes together and sitting in the hot tub after the game. It, you know, you don't you almost don't want it. So, I mean, it's it, it try. These are the times that try men's soul. Tom Paine wrote uh, about the American Revolution. And that's the case here. Rebuilds try our souls. Uh, you know, so it's just it goes with the territory. Unfortunately, I, I don't think if you're going to do a rebuild right, you can get too worried about trying to that stuff in the short term. You just try to find guys who can play with the right approach. And then once you start winning, those things always work their way out. Love the Thomas Paine reference. I literally just finished reading Common Sense for about the 42nd time uh, a couple days ago. I read it in one day. But Elrod Enchilada, Real GM, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for reading the book. Uh, anytime you want to discuss it, you're more than welcome. Thank you, Larry. Good luck with the show and good luck with the great book. Thanks, Elrod, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Chuck Dietz, Ostrovex, and Steph Legrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat, and you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our guest, Elrod, for our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, for myself, the executive producer, and the host. I'm Larry H. Russell. See you next Sunday for another edition of Celtics Beat, heard exclusively on CLNS Radio.